Hi everyone, this is Whitney Jennings, and you're listening to Minds Worth Meeting, a podcast by Stern Strategy Group. The business landscape is hyper-competitive, and thanks to technology, it's changing at breakneck speed. Executives, directors, and managers are all looking to develop and implement the next innovative idea to differentiate their brand, drive growth, and build awareness for their companies. The problem is, they don't always know where to look or what strategic advice to follow. As a leading speakers bureau and communications agency, Stern Strategy Group has a direct plug to world-renowned thought leaders, executives, and practitioners actively transforming the future of businesses across industries, disciplines, and the globe. Each season, our network of experts demystifies the rapid changes occurring in technology, marketing, strategy, healthcare, education, and much, much more. Whether you're looking for ways to improve your business model, reach new consumers, fine-tune your operations, or just make sense of artificial intelligence, you'll be privy to the insider knowledge shared in each episode. Amazingly, many of the lessons are just as applicable to your personal life as they are to your business. This is episode 20 of Minds Worth Meeting, and today you'll meet Dan Barish, co-founder and executive director of New York City's The Low Line, which is the world's first underground park. You know, it's not enough to just physically design a beautiful space. You also need to think about how you breathe some life into the programming of the space in a way that doesn't feel top-down, doesn't feel like you're designing something for everybody, but that it becomes a, uh, an opportunity for people to design it themselves and for the community to feel a sense of ownership and engagement with the space, to interact with it as their own, to, to think of it as their own backyard, their own playground, and uh, their own lawn and their own community space. And, and that's, I think, where the real magic happens because you then have just these incredibly authentic and really organic, fun, often very inexpensive and very ad hoc, but, uh, but really well attended and very popular events and activities. And the space really hums with life. Dan is a leading expert on design and innovation for the future of cities and an authority on carrying out large-scale urban development projects. A pioneer in the field of urban futurism, his new book, Ruin and Redemption in Architecture, available now, explores the magic and potential of reimagined, redeveloped, and forgotten urban places. He offers practical examples with vivid imagery from all over the world of how creative designs have spurred redevelopment in sites long neglected or abandoned. Barish sees city planning in the 21st century as the art of bringing together diverse stakeholders with diverging interests to work for the common good. Just Google Dan Barish TED Talk to watch his passion and ideas in action. If you love design, architecture, and the idea of transforming the old into the new, or you're just curious about what's next on the horizon possibly for your city, this episode is for you. I know you have colleagues, friends, and family who are interested in learning about the latest research and trends that will help them grow their 21st century companies. So please do us a favor and give the gift of a competitive edge by sharing Minds Worth Meeting. And with that, we'll get into our episode with Dan Barish, Urban Futurist. Dan, thanks so much for joining us today. We're, we're truly excited to have a conversation with you and learn all about what you've got going on this year. So, so let's just dive right in. Great. Your upcoming book, Ruin and Redemption in Architecture, captures the beauty of forgotten places and reveals designs that can bring them back to life. 
What inspired you to write this book? So uh, about a decade ago, I started a project called The Low Line, which is a plan to transform an abandoned historic 100-year trolley terminal uh, in New York City's Lower East Side neighborhood uh, and transform it uh, with a new solar and optical technology approach that would allow plants and trees to grow underground. And the idea really uh, stemmed both from, you know, a, a, a deep love of New York City, where I'm, I'm from, and, you know, I have four generations of New Yorkers, and I've, I've long uh, really just been incredibly entranced by New York City's present, but also its, its rich, rich, rich history. Um, and, uh, and really this, this actual physical space, an abandoned site that, uh, you know, in a crowded, dense environment like New York City, it's rare to find uh, this much abandoned space and, uh, you know, have a, almost a, a nostalgic ghost of, uh, you know, from, from 100 years ago uh, speaking to you through the a physical, a physical site. So, you know, I fell in love with that site along with my co-founder uh, in the project, James Ramsey, and, and together uh, the two of us basically built an organization to uh, to take over the site and to preserve it and transform it into what we uh, would hopefully uh, 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 call the, the world's first underground park. And, you know, over the course of the last decade, I've uh, not only been, been working very, very intensely on bringing the low, low lines up to life, but, but also uh, I've had the incredible opportunity to connect with lots of other people, uh, both in New York City and around the world, who are similarly working on transforming abandoned sites. And, you know, I think I, I got to wondering over the course of that time, and, uh, you know, it sort of stems from something, you know, that was deeply uh, intriguing to me personally, uh, is what is it about abandoned spaces that uh, excite the imagination and inspire people uh, like me, but like many other people uh, around the world to uh, uh, put forth really incredible, interesting ideas to reclaim these spaces, preserve them, uh, describe them as something that is valuable, uh, and then really devote tons of resources, time, money, energy to revitalizing them and perhaps making them something even more extraordinary or more magnificent than than what they were originally. Uh, and so this book is really uh, an exploration of that process from you know, simply looking at abandoned spaces and what is the raw beauty behind them, what draws us to them, and then also tracing the journey of the challenges associated with preserving them, uh, putting together some kind of a, a viable design scheme, and then hopefully transforming them into something really spectacular. Fantastic. So today's global cities face problems related to overcrowding, the fraying of community ties, and the lack of green spaces, as you've mentioned. How do you see the low line as addressing these problems, in part in New York City? Well, as, as you mentioned, the bigger challenges that we face right now as a as a culture, I mean, our, our cities are getting denser and denser. Uh, New York City has always been an incredibly dense place. And so in some, in some ways, New York City has been a laboratory for uh, what we do when we have an incredibly tightly packed population in a small geographic location. I think the Lowland represents a, an exciting shred of of hope and inspiration in an otherwise very concrete and steel and glass environment, which is to say that in a, in a city like New York that's now been around for hundreds of years, there aren't really a lot of spaces that you can just 
bulldoze and turn into some beautiful verdant green park or space. Uh, most of, uh, of, of New York City, certainly in Manhattan, the densest area within the city, it's, things are so incredibly built up and out that you just simply can't uh, uh, envision the creation of new open space or public space or green space. And so when you find an encounter, an abandoned or forgotten site, I think you have an even heightened responsibility to think about what this space can become. Does it need to become a another retail environment? Does it need to become a basement or a storage center or some kind of parking garage for cars? Uh, no, it doesn't. It actually could be something that the local residents who are clamoring for opportunities to get together physically and enjoy some modicum of nature and respite within a dense urban environment. Uh, it, it can be all of those things, and it just simply requires a different approach. It requires a different development model, a different funding stream, a different way of thinking about what these spaces uh, can and, and should be for people who actually live in and around the area. Uh, you know, I would I would also say, you know, to your to your other point about social alienation. I mean, we live in an incredibly fractured time in history when. Uh, people are living most of their social lives often online. Uh, you know, friends of mine who have kids who are teenagers, uh, you know, younger people now, and I think people of all ages are increasingly living really in, in the digital sphere and not necessarily uh, venturing out of there for all kinds of social interactions. And the art of just physically being with other uh, human beings and interacting with them is something that is, in some ways, uh, you know, at risk. And one of the beauties of living in cities, and the, what, what I love about New York City, but, but about all cities, is that it forces people to interact with people who might not be the same as them. And it forces it on the subway, it forces it on the streets and the sidewalks, and parks and public spaces are, in some ways, the epitome of that. They're designed to draw everybody together, not just the extremely wealthy and not just uh, the most indigent, but everybody of all walks of life should have some expression, some physical space in a public park or a public open space. That's the ideal anyway. And, uh, and so in, in trying to reconfigure a football field size, roughly acre of, of space that is just below an incredibly dense neighborhood in Manhattan and use that space as a, as a convening and gathering site for all kinds of uh, people from uh, uh, parents to kids to to older citizens to you know all all kinds of students and uh, people who might want to uh, be promoting a small business in the neighborhood you know all kinds of different kinds of people uh, interacting and engaging in a way that 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 really fosters a sense of uh, uh, we are not alone we are part of a broader community. And uh, the community has a physical manifestation in this space. And that's the hope for the low line and I think for a lot of other public spaces that are in the same, the same vein. Can you explain some of the design elements of the low line project that foster this intergenerational, interdisciplinary approach to strengthening the community? Absolutely. Um, so I think one of the things that we did uh, at the low line, it's not very often actually when building and designing and imagining uh, future public spaces that you have the opportunity to prototype uh, the space before it actually opens. 
in our in our case, we did. We built a what we called the low line lab, which was open for a year and a half, and it was designed to showcase the solar technology. But it was also a, a physical open space that, uh, in a in a roughly six thousand square foot space, uh, was designed and programmed to mirror and mimic how the low line would look and feel. And it was open to the public, and uh, over a hundred. 10,000 people came to see the space and only a matter of months. And uh, if it was uh, open regular hours, which we weren't able to do, but if it was open regular hours, we would have attracted uh, between half a million and a million annual visitors. So it, it, it would easily become one of the, the top venues, uh, uh, sort of a, a gathering spaces in, in downtown Manhattan, which is extraordinary. Yeah, it's clearly something that people want and need. I think I think that's right. I mean, I think that uh, I think about really human stories. Uh, when I was there, I remember speaking to a woman who lives in the neighborhood who was probably in her seventies, and she said that every Sunday she would come down there with her grandson, and she would bring her grandson, who's about ten or twelve years old, uh, to the site to you know sort of spend a little bit of time together. And you know, we had we had um, you know little picnic. Uh, chairs set up, and you come in there with your coffee, and and just sort of hang out in the in the warmth of the interior space. I should note, the low line is uh, a vision for an underground park, and one of the one of the good things about that kind of a vision is that it allows you to be protected during the colder months. So when it's freezing freezing and cold out, like today is a freezing day in New York City, this would be a beautiful day to. Uh, go into the Lowland site, um, stay warm, and have a you know a physical civic space to to spend time. Uh, but you know there are, are a ton of other ways to answer your question around how to uh, bring multi generational uh, visitors to the site and really foster a sense of welcoming and and um, and comfort for for different kinds of people. Certainly, there are programs that are designed and earmarked for certain populations. So, for example, we did a, we did a lot of work with uh, young people, schools, and teachers and educators to open up the site as a way to get young people excited about the potential of the solar technology, but also just the the landscape design, the you know being adjacent to nature. Uh, I had some really fascinating conversations with both teachers and young. Uh, middle school and high school kids from across New York City who would come over there on the weekend and would say something like, "I've never seen a plant like this before." We had some really very cool botanical plants in the in in the site. Uh, one one of my favorites is this pitcher plant that basically uh, look resembles a pitcher and has a little bit of a fluid in the bottom of it to attract insects. And uh, it's just a lot of fun to sort of see young people engaging with that. We had strawberries in the space, so you could kind of uh, go in and see the strawberries. Some, in some cases, young people would actually pick the strawberries, which was not something we were trying to en- encourage. But it was fun to see that level of interaction. Uh, but then you also had uh, the opportunity to have more serious discussions and conversations that would attract, I think, people of different ages and of different um, different groups across the city. So we had some NASA scientists come and speak a little bit about, uh, you know, innovation in. Uh, in in solar uh, technology and in some of what uh, what NASA is doing in trying to grow food in um, in, in, in the space environment using uh, uh, solar attraction devices, 
Uh, and uh, we had you know, a ton of things that were sort of more social and were more organized around getting young people from the community to come out and celebrate the, the rich, vibrant small business community in the neighborhood. So, uh, you know, basically reviving a, you know, early 20th century street fair in a way. You know, I think what's, what's, what's fun about that is that a lot of these things weren't even necessarily programs or events or activities that we ourselves designed. They were presented to us by members of the community as activities and events that they wanted and that they were willing to co-host and in some ways, uh, you know, drive their own communities to come and enjoy the space. So it, it really comes down to the sense that, you know, I think that whenever designing a public space, you have this larger question of how will people use it? You know, it's not enough to just physically design a beautiful space. You also need to think about how you breathe some life into the programming of the space in a way that doesn't feel top down, doesn't feel like you're designing something for everybody, but that it becomes a, uh, an opportunity for people to design it themselves and for the community to feel a sense of ownership and engagement with the space, to interact with it as their own, to, to think of it as their own backyard, their own playground and uh, their own lawn and their own community space. And, and that's, I think, where the real magic happens because you then have just these incredibly authentic and really organic, fun, often very inexpensive and very ad hoc, but, uh, but really well attended and very popular events and activities and the space really hums with life. So undertaking a major development project in New York City requires engaging many different stakeholders. You've mentioned education being um, a great beneficiary of, of something like this. You have to keep the local community on board as well as politicians, city officials, and the media. How have you managed public and government relations during the Low Line Project? <laughs> well, well, I hope I hope somewhat adequately. <laughs> um, uh, no, that's a big question. I mean, there are a lot of different stakeholders here, and as you know, the the Low Line Project uh, is right in the center of a uh, very dense local community, the Lower East Side of Manhattan, and uh, New Yorkers tend to be extremely opinionated. Uh, about what happens in their blocks. And so, as you know, there's there were a ton of different groups and, and folks to engage in, in what could the space become. Uh, I think at the very earliest stages, we uh, knew that we needed to engage the, um, the elected officials that represent the community. So that was a natural place to start and talk to the offices of people who represent the Lower East Side neighborhood from the city council, up to uh, the state level in Albany here in New York, to uh, the even even to our, our federal government, our senators in, in Washington D.C., uh, and and engage all of those staffs and say, listen, this is this idea and this concept. You know, what is your sense of this? How can we do this in a way that serves your constituents? And that was actually a really helpful way to sort of start in uh, having a much broader view of kind of where the political wins were and, and uh, who uh, was uh, supported. We, we found just an incredible and high degree of enthusiasm from all of those folks very early on, which was incredible. Uh, then there's the sort of local community, which is very different, I think, from elected officials. And local community members uh, are, you know, highly engaged in our neighborhood, um, incredibly focused on preserving the community for people uh, of all kinds, but especially for the most vulnerable members of the population. Uh, the Lower East Side, our neighborhood, happens to have a high proportion of residents in public housing or subsidized housing and uh, has one of the lowest income zip codes across uh, across Manhattan. 
And so there's a lot of vulnerable members of, of the community. And a lot of them are seniors, a lot of them are people of color, and have a strong sense of uh, not being included in the development process and having been felt left behind in waves of gentrification and waves of real estate uh, profits across the area. And so there's a high degree of distrust uh, you know, within the community of any new development projects uh, that aren't really starting from a standpoint of focusing on the central issue of affordable housing. And, you know, so obviously we are not an affordable housing project, right? We are a, we're an open space project. So, you know, the, well, I think one of the key questions was how do we connect to the bigger issues that are um, really of concern to the most vulnerable members of the population? You know, we have to think about this public space as being something that is valuable to all, uh, not just people who, um, you know, have the, the free time to go, you know, get a $5 latte and then go hang out, um, you know, before brunch, uh, uh, you know, but, but, but really the people who are, are struggling to make ends meet and uh, are, are having a tough time with it and um, feel alienated by some of the changes happening in their own community. So, you know, that was something that we, need, we needed to and continue to, to really need to take seriously. I mean, the local community dialogue is something that a lot of times developers really miss. And I mean, the recent uh, uh, conversation around Amazon uh, here in New York City is a great example of that. Right, uh, right. Of, of really missing the, the local community um, perspective on what is the kind of community that people want and need. And also, what do the most vulnerable members of the population really feel about uh, the addition of a new amenity, or in the case of Amazon, a sort of huge corporate headquarters. Behemoth. Uh, that, that will, <laughs> yeah, exactly. That will, you know, that, that will make really, really, really substantial changes uh, within their community and their, and, and their way of life. And I think that's something that, you know, Amazon might be on the opposite end of the spectrum, I would hope, from, from, from the low line, in terms of uh, showing, I think, a blatant and uh, alarming disregard for, or a real willingness to sort of try to steamroll and not focus on uh, the really legitimate uh, local community interests that, uh, that, 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 that found the addition of that kind of co corporate presence not something that would be valuable for, for, for the residents. And so that, that's an extreme example, but sort of returning to the low line, I mean, I think what we, what we really did was to say, listen, this is not something that is a foregone conclusion. We want to sit down with all different members of the community that have, um, you know, leaders uh, of the neighborhood for generations and the community organizations that have been serving vulnerable uh, populations, as well as uh, uh, populations that are solidly middle class and even those that, um, you know, are, are actually the, the real estate and business interests within the community. Let's all sit down and look at what is the kind of community that we want for those of us who are planning to stick around a while. Let's look at how the low line can, can serve those interests. And so we, we did a ton of, I mean, dozens and dozens of uh, uh, community meetings, both within the low line lab, but also sort of taking it out to where residents really live and spend their time. So in community centers, in basements of uh, rec centers and churches, uh, in schools, uh, engaging with younger people in an intentional way through, through some youth programs, and engaging with seniors in an intentional way through some of the community organizations that work with them, uh, you know, having roundtables with small business owners that feel really vulnerable to some of these changes, and uh, trying to boil that into a sense of, you know, how do we actually build this thing in a way that from a, um, a design standpoint, from the construction uh, phase to the, the, the eventual governance model, once we're built, that really reflects what the community can be. 
and and so I think that you know uh, I feel like I'm sort of going on and on, but there was the the political constituencies, the community constituencies, um, and then you know there's obviously a ton of other uh, groups that we worked with, but I, w- I would say that those are really the, um, um, the the right places to start because ultimately what you're what we're doing in this space is is looking at improving people's lives, and it's not just about the physical space. It's about real people who actually have to walk by this space and hopefully will um, get something beneficial out of it. And we're not looking to be um, part of the problem. We're looking to be part of the solution to a community that that feels vulnerable and uh, is increasingly feeling uh, the effects of a very unequal city. I want to touch on one of the one of the things that you mentioned, because trust is increasingly a big question for leaders today. How do I build trust? Where did I lose trust? What's the next step as far as promoting trust throughout my organization and and getting consumers to to trust us and to believe that we're a trustworthy organization? And it seems as though you've been able to successfully do that. what what advice would you give to leaders, whether they're doing you know massive design projects or simply trying to communicate their their mission and their vision to consumers? What would be your advice to them on how to communicate that they are trustworthy? The thing I would probably emphasize the most is that there are no shortcuts. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's it's easy and tempting for those of us who are actively trying to accomplish something. Uh, it's really tempting to try to look at community engagement or uh, uh, organizational engagement uh, in 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 a, you know in a, in, a, in a nice tight timeline and say, listen, this is how we're going to do this over the next three months, how the next six months. You know, by by Q two, we'll have accomplished this. This is the way that projects get done. And the problem is that that's not actually how I think trust works. I think trust is built over a much longer time period mm. and. It requires sticking around. It requires understanding and having real relationships with people who are uh, who are really different from you and who are going to push you and have really uncomfortable conversations with you uh, in a way that um, is not something that um, is always going to be incredibly enjoyable. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, I think uh, some of the conversations that I have had with my um, uh, that I've had with uh, with members of my community here. Uh, is it is uh, you know not necessarily you don't necessarily start off on the right foot you know you start off with 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 folks who are incredibly critical or who have a high degree of distrust and I I think the first thing to do is to not be cowed by that and not to be scared by it but to really just sit and listen to it and pay attention and recognize that this is really important information that you cannot ignore if, if you are interested. In, in building trust, in, in establishing that sense of, um, of connection. Uh, I think uh, people need different things. And generally speaking, most people are not going to, to, to trust you uh, if you have one meeting and you invite them to it. <laughs> um, they're not going to trust you if you have one conversation and say, here are my objectives and I'm such a good guy or such a, such a good person and, uh, and you just have to trust me. This is going to be great. Absolutely not. That's not the way humans work. That's not the way any animal in the animal kingdom works. Trust comes from a place that is deeper than that, that requires a lot more time. Uh, we're skeptical animals, and we we need to uh, uh, really give ourselves a lot of the, um, um, the time uh, and the space 
to build relationships that uh, allow us to do our work better. Outside of New York, and in referring back to your book, what are some of the other locations, the other abandoned spaces that you see other designers transforming? Well, I mean, the thing that strikes me is that everywhere you go, uh, across New York City, there are a ton of projects, but across uh, the world, there's, there, there's a project everywhere. I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to go to a town. This is what's so fun about this book and was actually so challenging about the book that I just recently completed, uh, is choosing among all of these incredibly interesting projects. You know, we, I was recently in Amsterdam giving a presentation to a, a, a variety of city leaders across the Netherlands. And, you know, after my presentation about the low line and about, about my work here in New York, you know, people came up to me from all different um, uh, 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 places across the country and said, you have to come and see this, this project in Rotterdam, this project in Maastricht, this project in The Hague. And it just reminded me that, you know, for those of us who are paying attention, um, there's a ton of... Um, there's a ton of this kind of work um, that is happening all over uh, the world. And so I happen to have seen this in, in Paris, in London, in, you know, across Germany, um, uh, but also you know, in Asia. And, and really, actually, an interesting development of this is seeing how it's coming to life in places, uh, rural environments as well. Uh, and so I think looking at abandoned Rust Belt infrastructure in uh, places like Kentucky and West Virginia, there are all these different efforts to reclaim these spaces um, out of a love and interest in the actual site itself, uh, but also out of a sense of need and a sense that uh, these spaces can be and need to become something else for a new generation of, of people. And these spaces aren't all underground uh, former trolleys. What, what kind of structures are they? across the world? Honestly, it, it really does vary. There are uh, abandoned churches all over the world. There are abandoned factories. There's a lot of uh, abandoned industrial uh, infrastructure. So um, cement factories and steel factories and um, spaces that were used for uh, um, the production of sugar and uh, 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 you know factories that, um, for example, Nabisco, uh, and sort of broader companies that needed lots of physical space uh, for the, the production of their products. Uh, a lot of those uh, spaces actually, you know, um, for better or for worse, those the actual manufacturing facilities um, may not necessarily even be located in the United States anymore. And, um, you know, as, as, a, as, a, as a product of some of the means of production shifting to places like China, uh, you know, we used to have in New York City, for example, uh, uh, a, a wide uh, number of buildings that were earmarked uh, for, uh, we used to call them sweatshops, but these incredibly dense uh, spaces where laborers would build, you know, everything from from cars to to, to clothing. And these spaces are, are no longer necessarily used here in New York City, for example. And you see that kind of thing everywhere. Uh, you know, these, these older factories and spaces where manufacturing and production um, might have required a lot more of, uh, of, of a footprint. And uh, now those buildings aren't used anymore. So what becomes of them? You know, they have these, in many ways, these incredible bones, these um, beautiful windows, the, these incredibly large foot plates. Uh, and uh, they can become something really marvelous and extraordinary. Uh, there's certainly also a wide array of transportation infrastructure that uh, have not been continually used. So we see this in cities all over the U.S. and even uh, in other parts of the world as well, 
where train lines that have been uh, put out of commission or uh, train stations or, or destinations uh, no longer are used for that purpose. So then all of a sudden you have this really, in many cases, beautiful Beaux-Arts, beautiful structures that um, uh, have just been, been laying in, in decay and ruin. And so local residents uh, across the, the, the world are, are looking at these sites and imagining that they can become something else. And uh, it's a really exciting, I think, trend, and it will it will continue. Uh, it also, by the way, isn't new. I mean, one thing to sort of, sort of mention is that from the very beginning of architecture and design, buildings were repurposed. You know, you would sort of, um, you know, if you, if, you, if you conquered another people, you would take their temple and, and build on their temple. <laughs> um, and this was always, this is always the way that, that, uh, that design and architecture has been. Uh, because if you, if you build something really magnificent or, or uh, useful, it, uh, it, it has a way of uh, reincarnating as something else. And uh, what I think is new is that we, you know, we are, uh, as a society and a culture, um, using physical space in a really different way than we used to. Uh, you know, we're not necessarily building and manufacturing things, uh, at least in, um, in North America, in the same way that we used to. Uh, life has become a lot more digital, and a lot of the things that we're building uh, require data centers and require, you know, engineering um, and, and different, different kinds of physical spaces. They don't necessarily require these old industrial uh, processes and, uh, and big, big, big spaces in order to create things. And so uh, that's something that is um, is shifting, and with that shift, I think you're seeing uh, the creative reuse and reimagination of all of these different kinds of sites. Well, New Yorkers and New Jerseyans are are very excited about the low line. When should we expect it to be open and ready for our enjoyment? <laughs> well, thank you, and I hope more than just New Yorkers and New Jerseyans yeah. are excited. Uh, the, uh, the site itself, you know, I think we, we have a, a few years ahead of us until the sort of design and construction process can really be ticked off. So I'm hoping that within the next five years or so, we'll have, um, something, uh, uh, if, if we're not actually able to open in five years, I think we'll be well on our way. Well, we will be patiently and impatiently waiting <laughs> and we look forward to it. Thank you so much for joining us, Dan. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me, Whitney. I really appreciated it. Thank you so much for listening to Minds Worth Meeting. We absolutely appreciate your tuning in. Thanks for sticking with us till the end. Follow Dan Barish on Twitter at KineticDB or at LowlineNYC. And you can find his new book, Ruin and Redemption in Architecture, on Amazon.com. If you have colleagues or business people who are hungry to learn about the latest research and trends that will help them rethink their business models to grow their 21st century companies, please introduce them to Minds Worth Meeting. And if you haven't yet subscribed or left us a review on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Google Play, please do that if you enjoyed the episode. You can also find and follow us on Twitter at Stern Strategy and at Stern Speakers, and you'll find Stern Strategy Group on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram. And if there are topics or industries that you're most interested in learning about that you haven't heard on the show or that you want to hear more of, send an email to mindsworthmeeting at sternstrategy.com or reach out to us on any of our social media pages and let us know what interests you or what your company's challenges are. And make sure to subscribe so you're the first to know about new episodes. Thanks again for listening to Minds Worth Meeting. I'm your host, Whitney Jennings. Until next time.